It's Sunday of Holy Week, the week that Jesus died. And Jesus and Bartimaeus and the disciples and this caravan of Jewish pilgrims walk up the mountains to the city, Jerusalem. This wasn't just a walk. This was quite literally a religious experience. Uh, Jerusalem had become the famous city that it is partly because it's on a hill. That's what it's known for. So there's a whole lot of religious expression and symbolism in this for the ancient Hebrews. You walk up a hill and you see it from a distance and there it is at the top. It's like this pinnacle of culture and religion and trade and life just sitting there. And the Jericho Road that they would have gotten there on is a small trail that millions of pilgrims have taken throughout history. But it's a lot more than a trail. It's an awakening of sorts. It's uh, maybe a bit like the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu where it's not just the destination but you've got this ancient storied pilgrimage to get there that's this inseparable part of your life. Uh, uh, what it means for a Galilean to go to Jerusalem for Passover, you went the Jericho Road and you did it together. It, it's a one-day trek, 17 miles from Jericho to the Temple Mount. It goes uphill from Municipal Jericho, which is at the base of the mountains uh, in the Dead Sea Valley, the lowest place on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. And, and that's sort of like the gateway to the mountains. You go through the mountains the whole way, 17 miles away, Jer uh, Jerusalem sits there, 3,300 feet higher. So it's not just a walk. They called it an ascent. And w when you ascended to return back home to your capital city, it was like this spiritual homecoming that you were climbing to get to, which works on so many levels. Is this winding road, sharp cliffs, only a daytime hike because it's dangerous to go at it alone. And so a caravan was your one full day and you would get there close to sundown if you left in the morning from Jericho. And this trail that you would go on, it was steep and it was narrow. It was where the story of the Good Samaritan came from. So it's tiny enough that you can only go about too wide in some places, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of people covering this route in just a few days' time. Now, there were traditions, and one of those was that you sang. They had certain psalms reserved for this trip called Psalms of Ascent because you ascended uphill and sang them together. You united in community on this quest to remember and rediscover your roots in this ancient story that you were a part of, of political and spiritual liberation. And you would go to Jerusalem for your holiday to celebrate liberation from oppressive governments, to beg your God, the God of the Hebrews that you believed was the God of the universe, to please usher in the day whenever your nation was free at last, standing on top of the world in its glory days. Now, not far into the trail, Jesus' caravan would have passed a Roman outpost along the way where guards would have been stationed, protecting the road like a checkpoint. Can you imagine Jesus, knowing he's about to go start some serious chaos, walking by the Roman guards out on this desert trail, possibly singing songs about liberation? Jesus has a goal in mind. As far as we can tell, he doesn't explicitly tell anyone, at least anybody who gets it. But when he speaks, he says some cryptic things. And he says, like, well, some things people have to figure out for themselves. But think about the brass that it took for Jesus to go into Jerusalem completely alone, knowing that he's about to go single-handedly, cause this giant uproar at the temple. But he's solid, and he's pretty silent about it. Don't forget, his cousin, the reformer John the Baptist, has just been killed, and so his gut is like a fire inside of him. I'm thinking he's got to be sweating and pulsing as he's walking up the hill, singing these songs about liberation and begging God to make Israel and Jerusalem great again. 
and they ascend. They, they get closer to the village of uh, Bethphage, or Bethphage, which is outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus has one of his most golden moments. He asks a couple of young guys, Peter and John, to run up ahead of him and to get a donkey. Now, this donkey, this is brilliant. There's so many layers to this. It's the first of a long string of what Jesus is going to do that's like guerrilla theater. It's political dramatization. This is really common for the famous prophets in their nation to do in Israel. Uh, there had been a prophet, Ezekiel, who had laid on his side for 360 days and ate food cooked over human excrement just to make a point. Right? It's like a David Blaine street trick. So another one named Hosea married a prostitute, let her cheat on him, and then bought her back just to make a point. This was somewhat common in their culture. Jesus, he gets this idea to ride in on a donkey. Now it came from a line in their Bible that uh, one of the prophets, Zechariah, had written down. Now a word about prophets and we'll come back to the donkey. Uh, Zechariah, a prophet, he was not somebody who predicted the future. A uh, prophet was more like a truth teller or maybe even a whistleblower in the government. Everybody knew in their culture that Israel was founded on this covenant, that they were supposed to bless the other nations of the world. This was their purpose the whole time. And one day the line goes that they're going to be free and the other nations would no longer conquer them but would look to them as the big brother and they're going to be the good guy. Like the national mantra for them is they're going to be the light of the world. And they love that part. I mean, because who doesn't love to be the superpower and the great nation that everybody else wants to be like? Uh, but you know politics, right? They always devolve into corruption. So the prophets were sometimes like whistleblowers who would say, guys, if we're not going to do government and life the correct way, it's going to get us killed. And you know how that works. Not as fun to hear, even if it's like a reality check. So it wasn't like Jesus was the first guy that had this idea that Israel could be the light of the world, but they weren't going to be if they were corrupt, or that conquering and violence wasn't the way forward. Prophets had been saying this for a long time. Prophets would call out their own leaders a lot, like media and press and people may attempt to do today. So in Zechariah, the, the, the donkey passage, Zechariah says the other nations are going to fall on their own. We don't need to worry about conquering them because they're going to screw it up for themselves. We don't have to do it for them. They, they would describe these unknown forces as God's justice. And so Zechariah lists all these other cities and territories, and he says, like, Tyre and Sidon, the Lord's going to take away their possessions, and he lists Ash Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod. He says the Lord's going to put an end to all of their armies. And then he says, but I, speaking in the voice of God, I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces, and never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for I'm keeping watch. So he's saying, like, have faith. God's going to keep us safe and keep watch one day. And then he goes on and says this line, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey. And he says, I'll take away the, the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. You see what he's saying here in this ancient line? Zechariah is saying, we don't do war horses and chariots and tanks and nukes. We rule with humility and peace and collaboration instead of competition. See, this was always the way forward. Humility and nonviolence is how you proclaim peace. It's not by having bigger weapons and saying that, uh, that we're going to conquer you, but being the first to set our weapons down. 
And he says, our king won't be high on his war horse. The king of this different kingdom won't parade or uh, his prowess or brandish his nuclear weapons. He's going to be like lowly, riding on a donkey. That's his war horse. And it's not like Jesus was the first one to know what he was talking about. It's just that in a well-developed system that is unintentionally spiraled into this power hierarchy where violence and competition and male ego and posturing is the norm, where, where you're ruled by money and prestige, isn't it tempting to be one person in that, to just try to climb the ladder and not buck the norms and just fit in and, and, not, and just look out for yourself? Isn't it convenient for people in systems of power to blow off inconvenient truths for long periods of time? And then they spiral into bigger and more messy dominance hierarchies and more and more violence with people trying to climb the ladder and more and more madness. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? So Jesus knows that another person one-upping the system isn't the answer. You know this. For a fight to end, somebody has to be the one who decides to give up having the last word, right? Somebody has to say, I'll take the loss so that the madness can stop. For people to see the effects of their own corruption and power, there always has to be a victim, a catastrophe, a visual that shows in real flesh and blood in a way that's visible that this is the end result of this way of living. Because until you have that, people just brush it off. But a, a victim is a human display of injustice. This is the suffering servant that Isaiah had said Israel had to be. And Jesus knows that the leader of this nation has to be the archetype of a suffering servant, like a sheep led to the slaughter. So Jesus comes in to throw a coup, but it's going to be one where he's not going to get the last word or win the fight. He says, guys, I'm afraid I'm going to need my war horse for this mission. Go give me a donkey. So he tells these two kids. There, there's going to be a mama donkey and a baby donkey. Go get them both. And the colt is still too young to separate from its mother. So they get both, and Jesus rides the baby. Come on, this is funny. I mean, Jesus' feet are probably almost touching the ground. Now, meanwhile, in the town, people in Jerusalem hear that Jesus is on his way in. And this crowd of people come out, and you got to think about why is this such a big deal to them? Why is this Jesus guy a big deal? Well, in their culture, the gods would lead you to battle, and all of life is superstition and fatalistic, and so they would consistently blame their losses and wins in life based on whether or not God was with you. So if you hear that there's this guy who's doing miracles, who's going above and beyond the normal laws of physics, then you think, oh, God is definitely with this person, and this is just who you want when you're being taxed by a foreign empire to hear that one of your own is doing miracles you assume hey maybe god is with us somewhere somehow again so a lot of people want this guy to come in and, and they want to get behind him so many people are hoping that this is the messiah who's coming and john says that there's a big crowd of people mostly ordinary people who run out to see him and they meet him with palm branches and they spread their cloaks on the road they are getting ready to welcome in a king. They're like, bring it on. They're, they're excited. They're waiting on this William Wallace figure, and the caravan comes in, and there's here's a guy on a baby donkey, like head bobbing in the middle of the crowd, can't even see him, and he's coming in, and he's like, viva la revolution, right? 
we're, we're, we're coming to throw a coup. Now, this is funny. John says most of them don't get it. But they're excited. They're ready to take down the occupation. They don't even realize why he's on a little baby donkey. They're all, they're all like, let's go kick some ass, Jesus. And Jesus isn't riding their wave of emotion. He goes into Jerusalem and looks at the city and he literally cries. It says in Luke, he just stops and looks at the city and cries. A little embarrassing for the disciples, right? Not the grand entrance to the party that we were hoping for. Big leader, baby donkey, crying. But Jesus says, if you, Jerusalem, had only known what would bring peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. And, and here's the hell for Jesus, that this is his country that he loves. He's patriotic. He, it's not like he can't wait to put the screw to his family. In fact, when he's crying, he says this whole complex, this temple complex that he had grown up at loving, your enemies are going to destroy it and all of you because you refuse to stop fighting and squabbling for power. A great leader is lonely. Jesus can't even convince his own followers, this group, this crowd that's chanting his name, still doesn't get how peace is made. They're going to have to see it with their eyes because it's not made by one-upping or by winning elections. And they're all wanting him to lead the next coup and to win. But he's lost his cousin to the fighting and the jockeying for power. And it's like they'll keep killing anyone who tells them the truth. He later says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those that were sent to you. How I've longed for you to be gathered together, but you weren't willing. People stuck in power won't recognize it or listen. And the only way is the sad way of exposing what they're doing. Peace doesn't come on a war horse. Imagine what the establishment people or the Romans might say when they see this famous leader and he's riding in like this. They're like, seriously, what is this? The ironic humor here is that he's made a joke out of it, but the people don't get it. The, the Romans paid him no attention and his own people don't even get it. Had this been a well-organized uh, army with weapons and a general, he would have been put down on the spot. But he's brilliant, he's disarming, and he's subverting a system with nonviolence and humor and brilliance and brass. So Jesus cries over the city. And then he goes out to Bethany and he stays the night with his friends. 